This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. The suicide bombing outside Kabul airport was a brutal and savage punctuation to what has undeniably been a fraud attempt by President Biden to pull all American troops out of the country by next Tuesday, affirming for many the dangerous mistakes and miscalculations that this president and administration has committed in the region. They came to Kabul's airport in the hope of escaping this violence. Instead, they fell victim to it. As the staggering death toll soared to at least 170 Afghan civilians, today it was revealed the attack was carried out by a single bomber believed to be wearing a 25-pound vest of explosives. We do not believe that there was a second explosion at or near uh, the Barron Hotel uh, than it was one suicide uh, bomber. The reported toll of the bombing outside Kabul's airport rose sharply on Friday, with local health officials saying as many as 170 people were killed and at least 200 were wounded. Yet less than a day after the attack, crowds on Friday sought once again to reach the airport, their desperation to flee the Taliban blending with grief at the enormous scale of the violence. Suicide bomber claimed by ISIS-K, the Afghan branch of ISIS, blamed for the deaths of hundreds of Afghan civilians, most recently the suicide bombing in May of a school that left at least 90 dead, the majority schoolgirls. According to the New York Times, the revised estimates made Thursday's attack one of the deadliest in the nearly two decades since the U.S.-led invasion. President Biden hailed the sacrifice of the soldiers, 12 of whom were Marines, who lost their lives and the 18 other American service members who were injured in the blasts, even as the military worked to carry out his decision to fully withdraw from Afghanistan. For those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. He pledged that the United States would uphold its sacred obligation to the families of the fallen in Afghanistan, calling those who died in the attacks heroes who have been engaged in a dangerous, selfless mission to save the lives of others. Bill and I, our hearts ache, like I'm sure all of you do as well, for all those Afghan families who lost loved ones, including small children, or been wounded in this vicious attack. And we're outraged as well as heartbroken. Biden said that as president, he bore responsibility for all that's happened. But he again denied that his decision to withdraw forces by the end of the summer led inevitably to the chaotic scenes of evacuation at the airport or to the deaths at the hands of the terrorists. I had only one alternative, pour thousands of more troops back into Afghanistan, he said. I have never been of the view that we should be sacrificing American lives to try to establish a democratic government in Afghanistan. If Osama bin Laden as well as Al-Qaeda, had chosen to launch an attack when they left Saudi Arabia out of Yemen, would we have ever gone to Afghanistan? Even though the Taliban completely controlled Afghanistan at the time, would we have ever gone? 
I know it's not fair to ask you questions. It's rhetorical, but raise your hand if you think we should have gone and given up thousands of lives and tens of thousands of wounded. On Thursday, Biden said he still intended to meet his August 31 deadline for a full withdrawal. But he also said that he would not accelerate the departure because of the bombings. He said his top military officials had told him that they had the resources to continue the evacuations, even in the face of ongoing threats, while also protecting the airport from what they expected would be more attacks in the days ahead. I've instructed the military, whatever they need, if they need additional force, I will grant it. But the military from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Joint Chiefs, the commanders in the field have all contacted me one way or another, usually by letter, saying they subscribe to the mission as designed to get as many people out as we can within the time frame. That is a lot of General Kenneth F. McKenzie Jr., commander of the United States Central Command, called the continued threat from ISIS extremely real. It is their desire to continue those attacks, and we expect those attacks to continue. And we're doing everything we can to be prepared for those attacks. I'm not here to go into the geopolitical real politic of how ISIS-K is using this moment to reestablish itself at the forefront of the global jihadist movement nor will I pile more criticism onto President Biden. In my mind, what occurred is a terrible reminder of precisely why we should not be in Afghanistan anymore. Full stop. But the sad truth is that this is what being at war and extracting yourself out from the middle of a civil war looks like. And it's precisely why Biden is trying to bring it to an end and why most Americans agree with that. But instead of taking this somber moment to focus on the threat abroad or to try to comfort the families of the dead, it seems Republicans are doing nothing but searching for a position that will pay off for them politically in 2022. Except they can't seem to decide between the usual warmongering or calling for the president's resignation. But that has not prevented the GOP from using this moment to weaponize yesterday's attack for their own sick political gain. It was the direct result of horribly misguided decisions from President Biden. This demands painful accountability, said Representative John Katko of New York, the top Republican on the Homeland Security Committee. Our commander-in-chief has been missing in action and has failed to rise to this pivotal moment in our history. Charlie, don't surf! Much of what Katko says is perfectly valid. That said... None of it grounds for Biden to resign from office, as Republican elected officials fell all over themselves to demand even as the casualties from the suicide bombings in Afghanistan were still being tabulated. Extremely frustrated with this president. As I said, if you want to be president of the free world, you have to have the faith, the trust, and the confidence of the American public. President Biden lost that yesterday. There will be a day of reckoning, and we have a constitutional rights. Right now, in the next five days, everyone's responsibility should only be focused on getting the American. These fucking sick assholes care not one fucking iota about dead Marines or Americans left behind in Afghanistan. This is an opportunity for them to exact their pound of flesh from Biden by any means necessary. But look, both people 
bear blame here. And I know in such a tribal moment that we live in, uh, we can't fathom that both Republicans and Democrats could bear blame because each side's busy pointing at the other. But Donald Trump set up a, a, a deal, you know, that would make Neville Chamberlain blush as he's out there saying, you know, that this war's not worth it. We're going to leave. My goal is to leave. It's an endless war. Then he empowers Pompeo to go negotiate a deal in that context. Pompeo negotiated a bad deal. They weren't following the deal, the Taliban. They weren't ceasing attacks. They still went forward as if this deal was working. And then after he got out of his office, he even as recently as a month ago said, I boxed Joe Biden in at the same time, Joe Biden, who has reversed a lot of Donald Trump's stuff, including Nord Stream 2 sanctions and things along that line, made the decision to leave. He owns this decision as much as Donald Trump and the execution. I, I just think both Republicans and Democrats have failed the American people. Should Biden step down and be removed for his handling of Afghanistan? Yes, tweeted former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, as pieces of bodies were still being collected in the drainage ditches surrounding Kabul airport. I mean, this is a sad day for America. I, I can't believe what a coward Joe Biden has turned out to be. This is a moralistic failure in a way that is unimaginable for the United States of America. And she's rewriting history a, a bit when it comes to Afghanistan, criticizing President Biden saying that dealing with the Taliban is like, quote, dealing with the devil. Of course, her foreign policy team that she was a part of negotiated with the Taliban. This is the same fucking Nikki Haley who continues to stand by Donald Trump despite his own bungling of the Taliban negotiations. And lest we forget his continued attempts to overturn a free and fair election inside the borders of our own nation. But they were never ones for consistency, just political expediency, no matter who has to pay. And now we're negotiating with the Taliban. We'll see what happens. In Afghanistan, my administration is holding constructive talks with a number of Afghan groups, including the Taliban. Right now, what we're doing is we're negotiating with the government and we're negotiating with the Taliban and we'll see what happens from it. It is now clear beyond all doubt that he has neither the capacity nor the will to lead, tweeted Missouri Senator Josh Hawley on Thursday afternoon. He must resign. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn took it even further. It's time for accountability, starting with those who failed planning allowed these attacks to occur, she said in a statement. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Anthony Blinken, Lloyd Austin, and Mark Milley should all resign or face impeachment and removal from office. What the fuck are you people talking about? Marsha, I know you. You're better than this, you asshole. This is the reality of war. To hold Biden accountable is fucking absurd. Reaction to what she and, and many other Republicans who are part of the Trump administration are saying now. This is the tribalism that is absolute cancer in a reason-based republic. I mean, to your point, she had, you know, she had earlier given accolades and others to Pompeo and others who were indeed negotiating with the Taliban. And then, you know, it's okay when it's the Republican team doing it. But now that Biden's team is in, 
She's making headlines coming out saying, you know, this is crazy. Can't be negotiating with the Taliban. You got to pick a flavor and stay with it. It has to be something more in the American system than my team versus yours. There were dozens of other Republicans following that lead, demanding that the time had come for Biden to step aside, which is asinine for two main reasons. One, before the MAGA era of shameless political hypocrisy, No politician would dare to consider calling publicly for the resignation of a president while the number of American casualties were still being counted. Here's another question that I'm hearing so many talking heads ask. Would things have been different under the previous administration? Yes! Politics ends at our borders, folks. It would have been considered unthinkable playing these kinds of games on a day when American Marines are suffering their worst casualties in a decade. One of the many boundaries that Donald Trump shattered was this one. There is now no compunction about politicizing the deaths of Americans on a mission abroad. Everything now is political the moment it happens, even the lives of our fighting men and women. Tragedy should never have taken place. It should never have happened. And it would not have happened if I were your president. And number two, do these shameless and frankly fucking idiotic lawmakers calling for Biden's resignation actually believe that a tragedy happening, either in this country or abroad, is grounds for resignation? There are just no words to describe the arrogant, dismissive, and hard-hearted attitude that we are seeing from the president's team. By that standard, Ronald Reagan should have resigned when the Marine barracks were blown up in Beirut by suicide bombers in 1983, killing 243 U.S. servicemen. And for that matter... George fucking Bush after 9-11 and maybe FDR should have felt so much remorse after the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7th in 1941 that he left office as well. Do you people have no fucking shame at all? Yes, presidents must be held accountable when terrible things happen on their watch. We owe it to the people who died to investigate why it happened, whether it could have been prevented and how to keep it from happening again. But the idea that a president must immediately resign following a tragic incident like the one that happened Thursday in Afghanistan is fucking ludicrous. Plus, Biden ain't resigning, folks. He's the goddamn president of the United States. That term used to mean something before it was dipped in shit and debased by Donald fucking Trump. Of course, these people expect Biden to resign now. They've been conditioned to think this way from their fucked up overlord. Asked about the calls for Biden's resignation, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki responded this way. Two Republican senators so far have called on the president to resign over the attacks in Afghanistan today. What's the White House's response to that? I would say first, um, this is a day where U.S. service members, 12 of them, lost their lives uh, at the hands of terrorists. Uh, It's not a day for politics, and we would expect that uh, any American, whether they're elected or not, would stand with us in our commitment to going after and fighting and killing those terrorists wherever they live and to honoring the memory of service members, and that's what this day is for. The Republican politicians calling for Biden's resignation know, of course, that he isn't going to step aside. That's why they do it, knowing that their MAGA base will not just tolerate it, but reward them for their chutzpah. This is what happens when you have an American president and his administration who belong in a faculty lounge 
not anywhere near a position of authority over the greatest military on the face of the earth. We still have American citizens who are trapped behind enemy lines. We have no plan to rescue them. And we have an American president who is hiding in his basement rather than addressing the American people. Joe Biden should resign in disgrace. It suggests how far our politics have been desecrated in this Trump era from even a decade or two ago. With no shame, these GOP members have conveniently forgotten that they had publicly urged Biden to rush these very troops out by May, more than three months earlier than Biden acted. Today, the Taliban welcomed an announcement by President Trump that all U.S. troops should leave Afghanistan by the end of the year. But there are questions about how that announcement was received by the U.S. military and by U.S. and Afghan negotiators who are in peace talks right now. That, of course, was the deadline set by Donald Trump as part of his fucked up negotiations with the Taliban. Even the conservative Washington Examiner was appalled as this August headline pronounced, and I quote, these prominent Republicans love Biden's Afghanistan withdrawal plan until they didn't. The Republican Party lecturing the United States on Afghan foreign policy is ironic to say the least. This is the party of George W. Bush that uh, took a counterterrorism mission that was tightly scoped and successful and allowed it to mutate into a never-ending counterinsurgency mission while waging a war of choice that also failed in Iraq. This is the party of Donald Trump that turned their backs on the Kurds and allowed them to be massacred. This party has no credibility on Middle East or Central Asian foreign policy. This president was left with a series of bad options, and he made the tough decision, he made the necessary decision to not pass on this failed forever war. But this is the world in which we live and must now maneuver, one where the deaths of American servicemen become immediate political fodder to destabilize their own commander-in-chief. It makes you wonder, who is actually more dangerous, ISIS, the Taliban, or these far-right GOP members of Congress in the Senate who seek to take us all down with them into their MAGA-fucking swamp. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden letter reaching down. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is again Malcolm Nance. A return guest to the show, Nance is impeccably sourced within the intelligence community and can speak to matters of national security with unflinching honesty and rare empathy. His nuanced take on the Afghanistan withdrawal has been in stark contrast to the hysteria coming from the, both the GOP and the media who seem determined to hang on to 20 years of war. Schooled in Arabic, he is active in the field of national security policy, particularly in anti and counterterrorism intelligence, terrorist strategy and tactics, torture and counter-ideology in combating Islamist extremism. In 2016, Nance published the book, Defeating ISIS, Who They Are, How They Fight, What They Believe, which was hailed as one of the definitive tomes of the terror network. He joins me on mea culpa just moments after the suicide bomber killed upwards of 170 Afghan civilians and 13 U.S. Marines, plunging the evacuation into chaos and uncertainty. 
Nevertheless, Nance brings with him a clear-eyed view of what should be done and how we can get out of Afghanistan once and for all. So let's listen now to that conversation. So Malcolm, you've been vocal in your defense of Biden's handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and tweeting on Monday, what happens if we succeed? I'm sure the New York Times, Peter Baker, and Trump media will insist this was the worst military catastrophe in all history. In fact, it's on track to be the cleanest, most orderly, non-combatant evacuation ever. Why is there such a bleak portrait from the media? Well, because I think the media has, to a certain extent, many of them have this this theme invested that, uh, you know, that Joe Biden's administration uh, is boring, uh, was not as interesting as Trump's, and, uh, and, and their general level of competence was supposed to be astronomically high. Uh, so therefore, they, I believe, thought that no one could make any mistakes. However, you know, we're not talking about, um, you know, policy on, on sorghum or the um, sale of, uh, of goods here in the United States. We're talking about the Byzantine world of Afghanistan and the South Asia and the Middle East uh, region. So there will always be a, this labyrinthine type of internal and external politics over there that will defy any American president. Here's another kicker. The media is behaving now as if we were not in Afghanistan for 20 years. I mean, there are things that occur over there on a daily basis. Uh, For example, the suicide bombing at the airport. This occurred every day, virtually, for 20 years. There were people dying by the thousands per month in the combat between the, the United States, our NATO allies, the al-Qaeda terrorists and the Taliban, who were their own form of terrorist group, as well as an armed, uh, you know, uh, insurgency. So I just find it absolutely fascinating that some people who have invested themselves in, in this new theme that once the Biden administration does something that that defies expectation. And let me tell you, the, the, the first few days, I thought, of the withdrawal were botched, but they could only be botched at the behest of the Taliban. The country was handed over. So, uh, you know, Biden can now do no right, according to much of the media. We've taken out over 102,000 people from Kabul in less than, you know, in less than two weeks I believe we took out 50,000 in 10 days, and now it's spooling up to be uh, as many as 20,000 per day. I mean, this is an enormous Berlin airlift, reverse Berlin airlift style operation. It's just stunning in its success. But then you get people who say, well, a woman gave birth on an airplane. Well, in fact, she didn't. She gave birth on the tarmac in in Rhein-Main or Remstein, Germany right in front of our U.S. Army hospital that everybody gets evacuated to at Landstuhl, one of the best hospitals in Europe. Uh, these, you know, it's a horrible humanitarian tragedy, but it's one that's been 20 years in coming. Well, the misinformation, the disinformation that's coming out of Afghanistan has been happening for 20 years, and it's certainly happening over the course of the past few weeks or the past month. But 
the difference between what's happening right now and in, in and the Trump administration mm-hmm. is that everything in the Trump administration was chaotic. Mm-hmm. And the press fed off of that chaos because it's the chaos that causes beta clicks. And it's what gets people interested. Now, the crazy thing is that, you know, the Washington Post, going back into December, posted a tremendous article. It was in the opinion section called The Ten Worst Things That Trump Did in 2020. Right. And the number eight thing that they decided, it's almost like a former David Letterman, the top 10 list. But number eight was that he w- that he's the one who ordered the drawdown of nearly all U.S. forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. Right. Right. Trump was apparently talked out of a complete withdrawal, but reducing to the twenty five hundred troops in each of the two countries from his defense people. And yet now he's the first person who's sitting there and attacking the Biden administration's decision to keep the 2,500, saying we should have kept more. I would have kept more. No. Again, first and foremost, he's a fucking liar. There's nothing that comes out. You know Donald Trump is lying because his lips are moving. Right. And it's an absolute lie. This is his own words put in front of the American people, in front of our NATO um, allies, stating it, sh- it should not be a complete withdrawal. I was talked out of doing a complete withdrawal by my people and reduce it to 2,500. Now he's saying we should have left 3,500. We should have left 4,000. I had this conversation just the other day on the podcast with Ben Anderson. Mm. And I turned around and I said the interesting thing about what Donald is doing is he plays both sides and that way he can take credit. And of course he can never be wrong because Donald is never wrong. Well, that's, that's very true. Let's put it this way. Donald Trump last year secretly ordered his acting secretary of defense Mueller Miller to pull every U S soldier out of Afghanistan by the first week of January before the new year. And the only reason that the Joint Chiefs and Secretary Mueller talked him out of this was the amount of material that we have to leave behind or destroy. So they hit him in the financial pocketbook, right? Because as you know better than any person in America, the man's a cheapskate, right? He thinks all of this stuff is his. And if he can't make money off of it, you know, he, uh, you know, he, he, I, I'm sure in his mind, he thought, well, we can bring that back and sell it. But that was the only reason that we did not withdraw before the inauguration, which means this would have happened. I mean, he's, you could almost say he's the luckiest man in the world. This would have happened last winter. And I see all his supporters online, the Ben Shapiros and all these other idiots who, who, who are constantly saying, well, the Taliban don't fight in the winter. We should have withdrawn in the winter. These people walk over mountains in flip-flops with a 40-year-old AK-47. They fight whenever they fight, right? All they have to do is get into a taxi to come over. Four hours later, they're in Kabul, depending on where you're coming from in Pakistan. So this is absolutely ridiculous. When you hand the keys to the country over to a terrorist group, which is what Donald Trump did, he did not sign a withdrawal agreement with the Taliban. He signed a uh, surrender document to the Taliban. 
And the worst part was they excluded the government of Afghanistan. Because if you remember Donald back in the 1980s, he wanted to be the big negotiator. He actually took out a New York Times full page advertisement asking that uh, George Herbert Walker Bush make him the negotiator for the strategic arms reduction treaties to reduce atomic bombs back then. And they wanted him to do the art of the deal on atomic bombs, right? Which means, <laughs> okay, I don't even want to go where that could have happened. What could have happened if that had happened? So he thinks of himself as wanting to make his, his Nobel Prize mark on the world. I'm sure you know that. And so in doing so, he thought, I'm going to have a Camp David-style peace treaty uh, with the Taliban. But it was between Donald Trump and the Taliban. He spoke to the leader of the Taliban on the phone and then invited the Taliban to Camp David. And he wanted that peace treaty signed on September 11th at, at that time. I mean, you know, September 11, 2020. Fortunately, everyone with common sense talked him out of this. He wanted the optics of being the guy who held the hand of between two warring parties. Well, unfortunately, the one warring party was the United States. So he gave the country away. The minute the United States signed that peace deal, the minute they signed that peace deal, then the Taliban knew Donald Trump would give the nation to them. And they were giving it to them. It was literally handing them a treaty on ground. Here's the keys to Afghanistan. Every person in Afghanistan was aware of what that meant. And what it meant was the Americans are cutting and running and their preferred partner is the Taliban, not the legitimate government of Afghanistan, who didn't know about this until February 2020 when they got a copy of the signed peace agreement. Malcolm, are you really trying to say to my listeners and to me that Donald Trump is not the greatest negotiator in the United <laughs> States history? Is there something wrong with you, Malcolm? I mean, seriously, you're going to say to me that he's not entitled to the Nobel Prize? Here's the funny one. Here's the funny one, right? So Donald Trump believes truly in his sociopathic mind that he's entitled to the Nobel Peace for Operation Warp Speed in terms of the vaccination for COVID, despite the fact that I believe that it is number five um, in his Jarring fighting with reporters during the coronavirus briefings um, alienated them and refused to acknowledge that at least mask wearing should be done. But he's entitled to the Nobel Prize because he actually really believes it and he thinks that he's entitled to it. What's going to drive him batshit crazy is the fact that they noticed Jared Kushner potential to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, that's got to send Trump into an absolute tailspin. The fact that Jared is up for a potential Nobel Prize in what he did in the Middle East, which, again, what did he do? He moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem simply because Sheldon Adelson was looking to make, uh, you know, to make it happen and was willing to pay $100 million or whatever the crazy amount was to make it happen. Yeah. Serious? Well, first off, someone I've worked in the Middle East for over 30 plus years, and someone's going to have to show me that peace that he would be getting the peace prize for because he didn't. What he did was they made a financial arrangement, essentially, between Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, most of the Gulf states to recognize Israel. Uh, Israel, in exchange, 
got essentially Palestine, right? The West Bank and uh, the West Bank and minus Gaza. And it was essentially a sellout. Believe me, the, on the Arab street, they think that this is the biggest betrayal by Arab leaders in, in history since, you know, since the time of the Crusades. So I don't know exactly what he would be getting a prize for. I know the rest of the world is not fooled. They understand that there's no peace there. Uh, Palestinians are still at, you know, clashing with Israelis daily. And by essentially saying that 80 percent of, you know, or, or, or however much the amount of the West Bank is going to be occupied by settlers and is going to be taken, uh, that that will only lead to future bloodshed on a massive level. And let me tell you something. The Arab world is fickle. I've worked in the Arab world. So let me give you their perspective, despite the fact I've lived in Israel. I almost married an Israeli, full disclosure. Um, the Arab world is very fickle. And whereas they may make a deal this week, all right, so long as Prince Mohammed bin Salman is in charge in Saudi Arabia, um, events on the ground can certainly change their minds quickly. One of the problems that Saudi Arabia had was a full-blown insurgency, internal civil war with ISIS, uh, I'm sorry, Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula that went secretly on in that country for five years, thousands of people killed. Um, all the Saudis have to do is make it clear to, uh, you know, or, or have it be revealed that they've sold out an entire people. You know, th that deal, you know, them not recognizing Israel could, could flip on a dime or a change in leadership towards radicalism. Someone once said either, you know, a groups like ISIS will be eliminated by Saudi Arabia or will eventually rule Saudi Arabia. Uh, we don't know. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. We've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, check out last Thursday's episode with investigative journalist and best-selling author Will Storr, who joins Jordan to talk about social position and the status game. It's an absolutely fascinating hour on why we buy the things we do for reasons we don't realize. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Like the July 6th interview with master pickpocket Bob Arno on how he spots a mark. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Well, I bring this up, Malcolm. Malcolm, I bring up this Middle Eastern thing, not really to discuss Middle East, because right now, you know, the the hot topic, of course, is Afghanistan. But I bring it up because today there were two explosions outside of the airport and reports are coming in. And again, I don't acknowledge these reports. A lot of it is completely misinformation. Uh, But one of the reports claims that the first bomb that went off was a suicide bomber. And that the second took place at a hotel, both, of course, outside of the gates of the airport. What do you think that this means? And is it the Taliban related incidents or is it some, you know, let's say rogue faction? Because Baradar so far has been excellent in terms of allowing this movement out of Afghanistan, and as you rightly stated, over a 100,000 people in a period of just a couple of weeks. So do you think, again, that this is Taliban-related? Are they in some way trying to scare the United States and its NATO allies to making sure that we keep the August 31 deadline date? What do you think is going on here? The group that attacked is called ISIS-K, or ISIS-Khorasan province. This is a radical, radical offshoot of ISIS that decided they wanted to establish themselves in the eastern mountains of Afghanistan. They're made up of Afghans uh, um, and radical Arabs and Pakistanis who decided they wanted ISIS's brand of caliphate in Afghanistan. Because according to ISIS-K, the Taliban are too weak and ineffective to do real jihad. ISIS is a cult, all right? It is a radicalization of, of, of Islam that, 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 that takes it back to the offshoots back in the 7th century. And they believe that anyone that is not them is an enemy of Islam. They also believe they can kill any Muslim because any Muslim that is not with them is not a Muslim. They hate the Taliban because they think the Taliban are not mass murdering enough. The Taliban hate them. And in fact, over the past couple of years, the United States and the Taliban have indirectly worked with each other and have destroyed ISIS-K base camps and uh, organizational structures. The problem is Afghanistan belongs to the Taliban now. The Afghan people and the, 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 the tribes, the governors, the provincial chiefs, they chose these deals. You know, they had a deal with the Taliban. And that's why the country fell so quickly. ISIS, on the other hand, is not controlled by anyone other than their own philosophy. That's why they carried out individual suicide bombings. It's the only tool they really have in their quiver. I'm sure they're trying to gain rockets so that they can try to bombard the airport. But the Taliban run a pretty tight ship. Uh, The interesting thing is this really hurts the Taliban. It did not kill any American citizens, as far as we know. It did not hurt any, uh, you know, it may have injured some American soldiers with just the blast effect. That's the dust and the wind and, you know, some of the debris which comes down. I've been inside of three suicide bombing uh, blast zones. So believe me, you, you can get little, you can get hurt in those things, but not really badly injured. And it unnerves you. And this is what ISIS wants. They couldn't get to us. They blew up inside the crowds. You might recall that the president noted, uh, made mention of this days ago, that we had intelligence that ISIS-K might try to do something on the ground. But it's an individual man with an individual suicide bomb belt walking through thousands and thousands of people with a very small device that has to be concealed 
So it's not going to be powerful. It's done for the optics of the news media. And the media right now is ready for this story. They are not ready for a successful reverse Berlin airlift. They essentially need, uh, I won't say need, that's, that's unfair to the media, but they eventually like to be justified that this is a disaster. And to be honest, uh, I'm just amazed that this didn't happen on the second day and the third day and the fourth day because suicide bombings in Afghanistan are, were as common as dirt. Wow. Well, let me ask you this then, Malcolm. It was only a matter of time before people began profiting off of the chaotic withdrawal underway in Afghanistan. Because yesterday on Twitter, you wrote that, and I quote, Blackwater founder Eric Prince is among the growing number of private defense contractors and former spies who are attempting to turn a profit on desperate Afghans who want out of their country before the United States shutters its 20-year mission on August 31st. Now, I read that Prince was charging upwards of $6,000 a seat to get people out of the country. What can you tell my listeners about this quasi-legal industry of spooks for hire and contractors operating in Afghanistan? Well, you, now you're looking at a subject that has also been reaping profits for over 20 years. Um, you know, I was in Baghdad when the birth of the uh, mercenary or security contractor industry started, uh, when I was working inside the Republican Palace. And uh, L. Paul Bremer uh, wrote a decree that said that any corporation or group that is operating inside this war zone will have to provide its own armed security because the United States government, government, the U.S. Army, won't do it. And within you know, weeks, thousands of ex-soldiers from around the world, South Africa, Britain, the United States, were showing up and forming security companies all over the place. Afghanistan was no different. The same rule was given in Afghanistan, that if you were a U.S. government subcontractor or a non-governmental organization, or individual, you had to provide your own security. You could not rely on the United States government to give you any security whatsoever, despite the fact that we had 100,000 plus men in the country. Therefore, all these teams in the, of, of you know, individuals or groups with armored land cruisers, you know, heavily armored Toyota land cruisers, uh, you know, running around with armed private security, a lot of ex-seals and special forces. And I mean, it got right down to army cooks. Uh, when I was in Baghdad, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. And Eric Prince privatized uh, and monetized the biggest part of it with his training center, Blackwater, in North Carolina. And then Blackwater got contracts to protect L. Paul Bremer, the U.S. Uh, you know, consul, you know, the, essentially the, the, the American uh, political warlord in Iraq. And they had all the resources of a special forces organization. They had secret service officers. They had helicopters. They were running their own battles to a certain extent. And when they got kicked out of Iraq for, you know, mass murdering uh, a group of civilians on the belief that they were under attack and they weren't, um, you know, it, it just showed the excesses of this industry. Full disclosure, I was a private security contractor in Iraq. Uh, I was a private intelligence contractor in Afghanistan before that even became an industry, right? Uh, so these organizations 
are in it for money. And they actually, many of them revel uh, in the belief that they're mercenaries and that they get paid. When I was living in the United Arab Emirates and I lived there for 10 years, Eric Prince was one of my neighbors. He had moved to the UAE. Uh, the Arab uh, the Arab sheikhs there loved the concept of the rebel mercenary pirate that he presents. He's an ex-Navy SEAL. They loved it. And I was quite surprised at that, considering the human rights abuses. But, you know, uh, these guys watch a lot of uh, a lot of, you know, action films. So Eric Prince was man- able to set up there and had gone all over the place, all over uh, Africa, Asia, trying to get security contracts until he formed a new group. Um, and the new group has the largest private security training contract in China, where they run a massive Chinese training facility. So, you know, this is the same guy who went to Donald Trump and proposed that Blackwater take over the counterinsurgency mission in Afghanistan. And I think in the back of Trump's mind, uh, when you consider how many billions of dollars we would have had to have given them, hundreds of billions, that maybe there was something to this private industry taking over this and getting the troops out. And then guys could go there and change their salaries from 1500 a month to 25000 to 50000 a month. Uh, you know, and the way that, that this corporatist mindset worked in his White House, I'm, I'm quite surprised that it wasn't proposed that that it was proposed in secret and leaked out. But, you know, you got to remember, Eric Prince's sister was the secretary of education, a woman who was put in there to destroy education in America. So what I don't understand, Malcolm, is upwards of six thousand dollars a seat yeah. to leave. <laughs> yeah. Where did it, where are these Afghanis getting six thousand dollars per person in order to get out? Second, you have these individuals that have been helping for twenty years. Is it really right that we should force them to pay upwards of six thousand dollars in order, you know, to get out in order to ensure that they're not going to be killed by whether it's ISIS K or others? And most importantly, are they serving beverages on these um, flights for six thousand dollars a seat? Well, I'm just kind of curious. I got to tell you. Um, having lived in Abu Dhabi, that's where he chartered this aircraft from. Um, and uh, that flight would shuttle people the one hour that it would take to go from uh, Dubai Airport or Sharjah Airport and fly into Kabul Airport as a on a humanitarian mission. Because they're not letting people just fly in just to be a bunch of tourists, as we've seen recently. You've got to come in there, U.S. air combat controllers who run that airport, the people who, you know, uh, run the uh, air terminal and process the flights as they come in and come into their airspace. You would have to be registered as a humanitarian. He was going as a for-profit disguised as a humanitarian organization. $6,500 is a business class round trip ticket between Dubai and New York City. Trust me, I've flown them by the dozens. So $6,500 for what would normally be a $250 flight from Dubai to Kabul. is It's not just Usuris. This man convinced investors that they could make, if they got the aircraft and you filled it with 300 people, that you could come out of this in a one, you know, one hour, two hour turnaround, $200,000 at a time. 
Um, having been involved in, uh, in, in people running in many, many countries and non-combatant evacuation operations, people have money. Uh, the people who have the money can spend it. They'll give away their family goods. When I was in Iraq, uh, we had a Christian family whose house was a safe house that I was in. They had gold hidden in concrete throughout the house uh, that, uh, that they sort of forgot about and then eventually came back and asked, please, if they could extract it. Um, desperate people will do desperate things. Uh, I understand that an aircraft left Kabul the other day with 300 empty seats, and I think that that was Eric Prince's flight. Huh, interesting. Well, let me ask you this question, then, because you recently tweeted, hard truth, some media are sad at the loss of Afghanistan, but also the loss of the, and, I, and hashtag, whiskey tango foxtrot life in Kabul. Mm. Villas, bodyguards, armored land cruisers, chodakars, um, cooks and drinking parties with U.N. pilots, all gone. What insight can you give about the lifestyle that you're describing? And what exactly is whisko, ta uh, whiskey tango foxtrot life? Well, you know, people always ask me, they say, what if I could watch one popular fiction film to understand that part of the world, what would it be? Would it be Gunga Din? Would it be the man who would be king? No, it would be the Tina Fey movie that came out about 10 years ago called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. And that's military ah. acronym for what the fuck. So <laughs> Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is this euphemism that we use when any anything crazy happens. We go, Whiskey Tango Fox Shit, shot you learn over. something new every day. So yeah. that... Yeah, you learn something new every day here. <laughs> that film is exceptionally accurate about the lifestyle um, in Afghanistan. I know I, I went and watched it in Washington, D.C., and I paid very close attention to the people around me who would laugh at the things a civilian wouldn't get, right? And they had over there, and in, uh, it, you know, there was a huge media structure. The same thing was established in Baghdad, you know, at, at like the Rashid Hotel and, and some of the other major hotels and, and the villas complexes that they would have. And over the 20 years, these massive sprawling sections of Kabul were built with these luxurious palatial type villas that news organizations would have uh, and would establish base camps in this country. And then would go out on these dangerous assignments to get the real story. So, and then they would go back to these luxurious base camps. Now, here's how it, it, it starts. When you fly into the country, if you have a news organization behind you, and you weren't just like some loser stringer, they would meet you at the airport with this armored vehicle, right? It looks like a land cruiser or it looks like a Ford Explorer. It is fully armored on all sides, front, back, top, sides everything. And then you would have armed men, usually um, usually ex-military people, uh, Afghan driver, because the Afghan drivers know how to get through it, depending on the level of, of security that your organization is contracted. You would have these armed, big, burly armed men around you, radio headsets, uh, have a pre-route, pre-planned route. They would have another vehicle in front of you, another armored car, with four more armed men inside. I did this in Iraq uh, as, as using Iraqis as, as, as part of my career before, um, before other activities were requested of us. But 
in Afghanistan. That's very impressive. You come into this bustling, chaotic airport. You have a handler meet you at the uh, the security exit, and that guy's already there. He's facilitated your visa and everything. And you go into this crazy airport, and then you're dragged out, and armed men are sitting there. And then you're thrown into these land cruisers. Then you go through this crazy, bustling, you know, medieval-type world that you know danger lurks around every corner. And it's true. You could be attacked at any minute. You could be in the middle of a suicide bomb at any second. Then you pull in at high speed to this villa, a very large, luxurious villa, with a plain, dull wall and a little old guy with an AK-47 out front who's called a Chogadar. He slides the door open and your vehicle slide in. He slides the gate back. And then you, you get out of the vehicle and you are in your work center. That's how you go to work. It's an office and your residence and where you're going to live. It's also your, you know, it's uh, where you meet other people, bring people in for interviews. That lifestyle was crazy. You could, and to go to a restaurant at night, that's how you went out. If you were an individual, a very high-level reporter, you were assigned a PPO, a personal protective officer. And Tita Fey has this British guy who's a PPO in there. He's supposed to be ex-SAS. He's, he's around her all the time. And they go to these, they have, to kill the boredom, these fabulous parties. Uh, when I was very, very, very early on in the Afghan operation, before there really was one, um, well, that's not true, uh, I, I took part in some of these uh, because, you know, it, it facilitated the cover that I was operating at the time. But, you know, you go there and you just see this world you know, filled with non-governmental organization, you know, clerks. And as Tina Fey is told in Afghanistan that, you know, she's a she's an Afghanistan 10 or nine. Right. But in the real world, she's like a three. So that it is nothing but their job because you live on site all the time. You go out in the field, you do these human interest stories, you do these going and get embedded with the U.S. military. Uh, you pull strings. Uh, people get killed. Journalists got killed. And but, you know, wild drinking, wild, lascivious lifestyle over there inside these compounds. Uh, and that is the well, I'm not so sure that that's accurate because I didn't see that in Rambo three when, you know, when Stallone ends up going to Afghanistan in order to bring Chapman back. Well, I don't know. You may be able to go there and, uh, you know, and there's nothing that's happening. Here. I, I just go and I walk right in. I don't come in with people. Right. That, I mean, you he, know, he just walks that's right. That's because he went to the base camp through the he went through the north. He should have just flown right into Kabul airport. Yeah. Rambo three. Well, maybe they should have maybe they should have brought you on as a <laughs> advisor to the movie because it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to talk anything about whiskey tango foxtrot life. That's certainly for yeah. sure. You know, Malcolm, I do want to ask you though. In a weird twist, groups like QAnon and other far right extremists legitimately have been celebrating the Taliban's victory in Afghanistan. Now, some are viewing it as a model of future insurgency here in the United States while others are celebrating them for their destruction of decadent Western values. Now, it gets quite murky. I'm curious in your analysis on these groups, if you had picked up on this narrative. Yes, we have. And as you know, I just finished a 120,000-word book on the coming insurgency in the United States. We talked about it on our last podcast. Um, but, you know, QAnon 
the, are the craziest of the crazy. And these were the people who were upset when there was not a coup d'etat that overthrew the United States government uh, before Joe Biden took power. I mean, really upset. They had been promised that there would be this storm, this Tom Clancy novel a scenario with a military, the U.S. armed forces would overthrow the government for Donald Trump and would start rounding up people like you and me, taking us to Guantanamo Bay or summarily executing us in a theme that they got from the neo-Nazis. Actually, the very book that Timothy McVeigh read that made him commit the Oklahoma City bombing, a book called The Turner Diaries. And that day was called The Day of the Rope. The storm, as they fashioned it, was supposed to come through and sweep away millions of liberals and traitors to Donald Trump. That's what it was about. When that didn't happen, and there was a coup d'etat in Burma, right, Myanmar, they were upset that the storm was happening in Myanmar and it wasn't happening in America where the army came in and overthrew the government and, you know, took the leadership into power and were threatening to kill them. They were really upset. I monitor their communications on a daily basis. And that is a bizarre, bizarre group. But they are the hardest. They are the ISIS of Donald Trump supporters. They are the hardest core, most fervent believers that Donald Trump is still president of the United States today and that Joe Biden is completely illegitimate or, as they like to say, is a clone, or, you know, is is not really president, and he's doing everything from a soundstage in southern Florida. I'm not joking. They believe all of this. So for them to see Afghanistan as a success because the Taliban humiliated Joe Biden and is going to prove everything Donald Trump said is incredible because they don't care. I mean, they were cheering the peace treaty with the Taliban. A year ago, that Trump was this great crusader and was coming in and was finally ending the Afghan war. But on the other hand, those who are armed, you know, oriented towards armed militancy are saying that the Taliban has shown us how to fight. Well, for most people in that world, the, the real model of fighting for them is the uh, 1970s movie Red Dawn, where the high school kids fight a communist occupation of the United States by hiding out in the mountains and coming down and ambushing Russian and uh, Cuban soldiers. These crazy people think this is actually happening. If you read the, the stuff that they have, Biden is Communist Party controlled and is run by, you know, China. And by the way, the remake of that movie from the night from the 2000s has North Korea, right? occupying the United States along with the Chinese. So these people watch a movie and they think it's a documentary. With more of our lives being connected over the internet, a lot of your personal data already exists online. Be vigilant in how you share information and help manage your digital identity. Avoid phishing scams, changing your passwords, and using two-factor authentication are just some ways to help protect yourself. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cyber criminals around the world keep finding new ways to steal identities. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. 
Device security helps block cyber criminals from stealing your personal information. VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats. Now, no one could prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock as I do, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off at Norton.com slash Cohen. Yeah, there's also actually on one of the um, one of the Apple TV type programs where what if the Germans hadn't lost in World War II and how they take over the United the States? A lot of these crazies, yeah, that's it. They're, a lot of these crazies actually believe that that's true, and it's just um, it's hidden right now but that they will rise and that they will actually accomplish this change the you know the american flag to of course the swast sticker but what's interesting also to note is one of those crazies actually got sentenced the other uh the other day to 6 years in regard to the um attempted um attack uh in Michigan on governor whitmer to hold her ransom right. to blow up a bridge and so on so I just want these folks, in case they by chance happen to be listening to this podcast, to take note that what you think is not actually reality, and worse than that, the reality is that you, like this other individual, are going to spend six years in prison for this ridiculous ideology that you have and that you're trying to promote. This guy is probably the lowest ranking member of that group who was probably just aspirationally talking as part of it. And he's probably flipped. That's why he got six years. Everyone else is going to get 30 to 50. This was an attempted murder of a, of, of a, of a state official of a governor. And, you know, by the way, my plan a, that was plan B plan a was that they were going to get 200 armed men, storm the state Capitol, take hostage, all the Democrats, release the Republicans and police and start trying them on television and executing them by hanging them out the windows. That was plan A. Sounds very um, dark. And familiar because January. Let me ask you this. Was close to that. (laughs) Exactly. Very close. And that's why this commission really needs to do its job. That's really why Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco and the rest of the DOJ, they really need to step up and they really need to answer these type of questions. But Malcolm, what do you mean when you say that the Taliban bought the tribes Mm -hmm. after Trump sold them the country? What do you exactly mean by that? Yeah, and it's a very labyrinthine world of of. Of, of tribal politics in that part of the world. They are, there is not a government of Afghanistan. We established the government of Afghanistan. The Russians, the Soviet Union, established a government of Afghanistan. The British established a government of Afghanistan. The one group that did not establish a government of Afghanistan are the people of Afghanistan. Because Afghanistan has always been a tribal region. It is raw base politics that starts at the family level. Tribes are just extended families. 
that stay in a geographic area that have particular levels of power and zones of control around the, uh, the their, tr- their traditional family homes. So Afghanistan has always been tribal. It generally have, occupies rough terrain. And those tribes are the true decision makers in the country. We started a lawyer jirga, which is a, a congl- an assembly of tribal chiefs when we came back and restored power in Afghanistan. And they were the decision makers about what happened in the administrative central government, right? So by establishing them uh, and, and respecting that they would have money and vast quantities of money that each of the tribes would benefit from some measure of security, because the United States would be providing security, uh, therefore their sons didn't have to go off and fight a war. That turned out to be false. We established an Afghan army the same way the Soviet Union established an Afghan army. The British established an Afghan army three times. These things happen when, you know, when powers occupy nations. But Kabul was the administrative center of this government and the financial and trading center of essentially a tribal nation. Those tribes determine what happens everywhere in that country. If they break away from you or they cut a deal with people that respect their culture, that are much more like them, and the Taliban are Afghans. They respect the culture of the tribes. They understand that the tribal leaders are usually the most religious, the most pious, the most conservative, who will who, who believe that their son's welfare, marrying off their sons to women from other tribes or other families is the most important component of their culture, which, which is why women weren't educated and which is why women were treated like cattle because they were there to expand the tribes. I mean, if any of this sounds familiar, it's all in the Old and New Testament. So these tribal leaders there determine what happens in their region. When Donald Trump cut the deal with the Taliban, the tribal leaders understood that America was handing Afghanistan over to the Taliban, not to the fake administrative government that they established in Kabul. Because anyone that's ever lived anywhere in South Asia, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, or Asia for the most part, will understand that Power is in the hands of those with the guns. And by the United States handing over the country of Afghanistan, we saw it as a peace treaty. The locals don't see it as a peace treaty. They see it as a power transfer. They were signaling, or Donald Trump was signaling, that the government of Afghanistan means nothing. And that the locals knew what was going to happen. These rich men who were leading the government, you know, had positions of high power, we're going to take as much money as possible, jump on a private jet, fly to Abu Dhabi, and start hanging out at Emirates Palace Hotel, right, where they have gold leaf on top of your coffee, and just abandon Afghanistan. That is the way it has always been done for millennia, not just centuries, millennia. I mean, these people know at the raw end of it that the only way they will have any benefit is to stay with those who are like them, respect them, and have power. 
The Taliban were given that country by Donald Trump. The central government was going to collapse. The military was always going to collapse. The only reason they fought is because we were there to give them backbone. We were there and gave them support. We were there and, you know, created a new structure for them to exist. The minute we disappeared, they weren't getting their salaries paid because the central government was stealing it, which is very, very, very common over there. Very common. I mean, Rudyard Kipling writes about this stuff. So they just they went home. It's as simple as that. They went home um, at that time. And the Taliban in some provinces, Mike, the Taliban rolled up with the 10 or 15 guys who were running suicide bomber cells or infiltrating weapons there were told, go take the provincial government headquarters. They're there to hand you the keys. When this story is told, it is not about America betraying Afghanistan. It's about Afghans betraying Afghanistan. They, they chose through the tribal chiefs, the Taliban. It was an election without a vote uh, by the average person. It was an election by their cultural tribal system. And here's what's going to happen. Peace is going to break out. The fighting is stopped. They'll have to demilitarize it, get mines out of there, uh, get the detritus of war out of these areas. But now the Taliban are going to impose what they want, which is a strict religious structure that gives them a modicum of what they think is Islamic justice and hard punishments to anyone that violates that and the opportunity for them to get all of their sons married to all of, you know, to these women. Question is, will they be a medieval Taliban like they were in 2001, or will they be a progressive Taliban that decides they don't want to be the North Korea of South Asia? I suspect they don't want to be the North Korea of South Asia. Yeah, I suspect you're right. But what I also am curious is whether or not Ashraf Ghani, the former exiled president there in Afghanistan, there are so many documents, or I should say there's so much discussion about him fleeing with like a hundred plus million dollars in cash to the United Arab Emirates, which goes to exactly the point that you just made. I mean, what better than to be the president, Donald, right? And then end up, you know, getting exiled, Donald, right? And then walking out with a satchel full of cash or a couple of plane full, right? Loaded with, you know, currency, moving off to some place where you can enjoy the rest of your existence with, as you stated, gold leaf in your coffee. But I do want to just keep moving because I have legitimately two additional okay. questions for you in the remaining time. In a recent New Yorker article written by Lawrence Wright, Ali H. Safan is quoted as saying, and again, I quote, when it comes to counterterrorism, We've been spiking the ball at the five-yard line, like a football player claiming points before actually scoring a touchdown. Right. If you would, discuss with me the potential issue we face with the resurgence of jihadism and threats from ISIS in Afghanistan. And what kind of psychopaths did Trump and Pompeo, because we haven't talked about Pompeo mm. yet, release back onto the battlefield as a result of releasing Baradar and his crew from a Pakistani prison. Well, Ali Sufan is absolutely right. Uh, we were spiking the ball at the five-yard line often, every time. The initial mission that we went into, the one that I went to Afghanistan for, was to obliterate al-Qaeda, its base camps, uh, its structure and organization. 
Interesting fact. Al-Qaeda was actually running the Taliban military structure in that country. They provided a lot of uh, knowledge, uh, inventorying of weapons, that sort of thing, and some religious backing. The Taliban liked the way that the Al-Qaeda members were intensely, intensely religious. And that's it's interesting thing over there. They, they respect anyone who is truly, truly intensely religious. Also that they were from Saudi Arabia, which is the land of the Quran. And they so respect the Quran that, you know, reading the Quran in Arabic is like listening to, you know, it's like listening to God speak to them. So they love that the what were called the Afghan Arabs, right? The Arabs who came from Saudi Arabia and other countries to assist them. When we rolled through Afghanistan, the tribes that we took down there to beat them were the Northern Alliance tribes. These are the ones who had minimal number of Pashtun people in their tribal areas and who could respond to, as I like to put it, when I was giving my proposal. Someone asked me, how do we, how do we get these tribal chiefs on your side? I said, you start putting gold bricks on a table, one at a time, and you say, stop me when you can't carry the amount that's here. Because that's how they think um, in certain areas, these, these, these avaricious tribal chiefs. The Taliban, on the other hand, were religiously motivated. And it is very hard to break uh, an ideology, a religious motivation, as opposed to just being greedy. Because if you maintain your orthodoxy, you can win. And if you can win, you can have all the gold that you want, right? So we kept trying to, um, to how can I put it, to eliminate Al-Qaeda. But the original sin started with, with George Bush and Dick Cheney soon after the operation in Tora Bora in December of 2001. We had Al-Qaeda pinned down at the top of the mountain. We had a special forces group that was working with Northern Alliance soldiers, day and night B-52 strikes. They were dug into this mountain bastion that they had built. And there was a proposal to jump Rangers, U.S. Army Rangers, and block Al-Qaeda with Marines on the Pakistani side of the border, which because that's the only way you can stop them from going down the other side of the mountain. George Bush and Dick Cheney did not want to do that operation because they thought it would cause too many casualties. And what we didn't know was that they were planning already to invade Iraq and that they thought the few dozen remnants or few hundred remnants of Al-Qaeda that could walk off that mountain, including Osama bin Laden, would be rolled up by the Pakistanis because, you know, you give the Pakistanis a billion dollars, they'll do anything we want. That's not the way it works there. Literally Byzantine. Well, too bad this isn't Turkey. Then it would be literally Byzantine. But they have a, a regional and internal politics where they wash each other's back. It was in Pakistan's interest for Osama bin Laden to come down into Pakistan and to keep the United States pinned down, to keep Indian influence out of Afghanistan. They preferred the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. But every time we try to wipe these people out, we stopped. And we fought essentially, you know, that old saying about the uh, Vietnam War was actually, the, uh, you know, one war, um, a, a, a war fought 10 times, right? Afghanistan was a war fought 20 times, 
20 different commanders, 20 different units rotating, you know, 20 different uh, versions of military units rotating in and out. Every commander thought that they could wipe out Al-Qaeda. You cannot wipe out an insurgency. You have to delegitimize it or you have to get the people on your side. We were not doing that. We were bombing them. We were killing their goats. We were uh, killing their wives and children. We were never going to win that. Anyone who had read any book whatsoever or even seen a movie about the Vietnam War should have figured that out. Ah, but we're arrogant Americans who don't like Muslims. We are bigoted and racist. And we think that with our combat power, we could do just about anything. We were proven wrong. Well, yes, except for the fact that Bush and Cheney, with their interests in Halliburton, had a financial interest not too dissimilar to Donald Trump to continue with the war and to create, you know, additional insurgencies. That was my opinion, uh, you know, reviewing information on it, you know, over the years. And um, I can see Donald, along with baby boy Jared, working that whole Middle Eastern bullshit, you know, with Saudi Arabia in order to have funds put overseas or somewhere uh, based upon what was going on here in Afghanistan. Can I touch on That's that just my opinion. Of course you can. Donald Trump was the first American president ever that the Arab states realized we can buy him. Every other president had the power, prestige of America behind it and were incorruptible. Even George W. Bush. Dick Cheney, I'm not so sure about. But Donald Trump could be purchased. And that's why they made that lavish show in Riyadh when he came there with, you know, the hands on the globe, right? Uh, they understood this man was simple of mind and that their luxury is what he, 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 he was jealous of. The same way that he was jealous of the Bastille Day Parade in Paris, and he suddenly wanted a parade with U.S. Army soldiers. Yeah, a military parade going down Washington to honor Avenue. Him, right, to honor him. So... You know, that part of the world understands a sucker. And Donald Trump got played by professionals in that part of the world. And no one better than Vladimir Putin when it comes to playing a well, sucker. I've, and boy, did he ever play Donald. Man's KGB officer. But let me let me end with this. There is a poem by Rudyard Kipling I have always loved. And the end of the poem goes like this. At the end of the fight on a tombstone white, the name of the recently deceased, an epitaph drear, a fool lies here who tried to hustle the East. We tried to hustle the East and we ended up where everyone who tries to hustle them let goes. We are not of those people. You know, you notice that we are pulling out hundreds of thousands of translators but there are no Americans that speak Dari and Pashtu and Farsi fluently over there or Urdu. We, we do that. We bring people in and then we, 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 we have to have them translate for us. And we create an industry where we get 75 percent, you know, cost plus contracting where you can charge $100,000 a year for an, uh, an Afghan interpreter, pay him 20000 a year and your corporation pockets 80. That's a fact. That's how all of the contracting was done in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, you know, we tried to hustle the East and there's our tombstone and it should have Donald Trump's name on it. You know, the fool who lies here.
Yeah, that in Mount Rushmore should have his face on it. But, you know, Malcolm, as we're winding down the hour, I have just really one, one last question for you. Trump's new big lie these days is, Af- is, of course, Afghanistan. And he wants everyone to forget that he forced this withdrawal, the timetable, and undermine the Afghan government by dealing directly with the Taliban, something we've now talked about for this past hour. Now the GOP is trying to weaponize the evacuation as a debacle to score political points. Now Trump is comparing Biden to Jimmy Carter and talks of hearings bring to mind Benghazi too. How worried are you about this evacuation hurting Biden and the Democrats in the midterm 2022 and also in the general in 24? It's a good question. Um, Let me tell you something. First off, the, the, the House of Representatives uh, election and the Senate elections in 2022 will determine whether the United States moves from a democracy to a dictatorship. If we lose control of the House of Representatives, which is hanging by a narrow margin, only a few seats, Donald Trump will be made Speaker of the House. Uh, you know, that was it was Professor Jason Johnson, uh, the MSNBC analyst who came up with this. And within days, the Republicans adopted that platform. They will make them Speaker of the House. They will start impeachment hearings almost immediately. Joe Biden will never pass another piece of legislation. He'll be a lame duck president for two years, and they will do everything in their power to see that Donald Trump becomes president again. And he he likely could, because their forces are motivated. However, Afghanistan is not even showing up on the list of the top 10 things that are impacting the American public. If the infrastructure package gets passed by Joe Biden, that will help a lot. It'll help immensely. And that's why Republicans are going along with it. They need that as well. Um, If the Voting Rights Act gets passed, and I think when Afghanistan's done, Joe Biden needs to work on infrastructure, but under the table, he needs to go to full-scale war over the Voting Rights Act. We have to strike down all of these hundreds of laws that are designed to keep black people and minorities from voting because they were the core strength of the entire Democratic Party that put Joe Biden into power. American democracy is at risk right now. Afghanistan does not impact American democracy. It impacts our respect around the world. It impacts our relationships with some allies. But, you know, in another year, people are going to go, hey, it's a good thing we're not there anymore. No, 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 Malcolm. It's actually not Joe Biden. Well, yes, as the as his own statements, the buck stops here. I go right back to our attorney general and I go back to the Department of Justice. They're the ones that are supposed to be protecting right. the rights. And it's not the president who's supposed to do it. I don't know what the fuck Merrick Garland is doing or Lisa Monaco. I don't know what's happening with this Department of Justice. It's about time somebody stands up. If I was the attorney general, I would have 20 special counsels going on right now. This notion that the Republicans can blame Joe Biden uh, for Afghanistan and hold him to resignation is insane. It's insane. And you're right. If they take the House, Joe is done. And then the second they impeach him, Kamala becomes president. Well, guess what? Within 24 hours, she's gone too. 
and they're just going to keep playing with this government because that's Donald Trump's game plan. It's to create chaos and more chaos and more chaos until a Republican comes in. And you're right, as Speaker of the House, he'll ultimately be reinstated as president because you go down the list. Well, all I know is this. The American democracy, as I said, hangs in the balance. You're right. Merrick Garland, I, you know, I meet these lawyers and you more than anybody calling on the state attorney general to actually do his job is quite astounding, considering all that you've been through. But you understand how much of a risk these people are to the American Republic. I've noticed that lawyers at the Justice Department and lawyers in general are a very clubby group of people. And, uh, you know, even if it's a Republican, the first thing they want to know is where they clerked at, who they worked for. That is a risk to us. There needs to be essentially a full court press in the cleansing of the previous government. We need to know what the previous government was doing to American democracy. Oh, and another thing, these charge recommendations for people that entered the Capitol getting misdemeanors and you know, um, suspended sentences. That's insane. Uh, I read an article, or not an article, somebody tweeted the other day on my timeline that a contractor who was magnetic detecting uh, for scrap metal on inside the fence of a U.S. government facility that was abandoned was given a $15,000 fine and six months in prison. This is ludicrous. These people tried to overthrow democracy. It is incumbent upon all of us to put the pressure on these people to understand that Afghanistan is not America. The United States does not own Afghanistan, and there's not much we can do about it now. But, you know, did you see that immediately? We just found $6 billion in funds uh, that were supposed to go to the Karzai government and support that now can go back into the U.S. government, uh, the U.S. General uh, Treasury Fund that can fund, you know, food for children in the United States. I also heard another interesting thing. They said if a fraction of the effort that all these ex-soldiers and military people who are doing God's work over there, calling and trying to get their Afghan interpreters out, was ever put into fighting for American democracy, trying to help the social fabric of America, this country truly would be the greatest country on earth. But People. Well, I still think I still think we are the greatest are. country. We are just going through. We are going through some some shit right now that um, it's very scary. And I believe that everybody needs to reach out to the attorney general. They need to reach out to the office, to the Department of Justice. And they need to make crystal clear that those people who are guilty of January 6th, the insurrection, that Donald Trump with his um, guilty behavior, along with Jared and Ivanka, their senior advisors and the rest of these sycophants that were surrounding him need to be held accountable for their dirty deeds. And with that, Malcolm, I want to thank you so much, as always, for your your brilliance and your insight and um i do certainly hope to see you again because we need to hear from you well thanks mike it's great being here and now for today's mea culpa in thinking about my earliest statement during the introduction to this episode that the maga wing of the gop is a greater danger to this country than the taliban al-qaeda or isis i must conclude that it's a hundred percent true in fact i'm not the only one saying it Miles Taylor, the former Deputy Homeland Security Advisor, went on MSNBC in July stating, I'm a national security guy. 
I've worked in national security against ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And the number one national security threat I've ever seen in my life to this country's democracy is the party that I'm in, the Republican Party. These people supported Trump's big election lie, voting to overturn an election won by President Biden and instigating the awful and disgusting January 6th attack on the Capitol. Their stance on COVID-19 and anti-mask fervor and support of conspiracy theories around the virus has caused the unnecessary deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans. On Thursday, the day 13 Marines were killed by ISIS, in our own country, there were another 1,200 COVID deaths. In Florida alone, home to the idiotic Ron fucking DeSantis who refuses any attempt for mass mandates, over 200 people a day are dying. New models show that another 100,000 people will expire from the Delta variant before it's over. Most of these deaths are preventable. Instead, conspiracy-driven, QAnon-loving political hacks are driving their constituents to die in record numbers. And guess what? Neither Al-Qaeda nor ISIS is the cause of those deaths. It's the GOP, fucking Donald Trump, and his idiotic MAGA mob. They are the real terrorists, the loudest voices in the room, creating death and chaos inside our own borders for their own gain. So, when I hear talk of these people castigating President Biden for Thursday's attack in Kabul, it makes me fucking sick. Now, don't get me wrong, what happened to those Marines is gut-wrenching, and the sheer loss of life in Afghanistan yesterday was a gruesome sight to behold. But the sheer hypocrisy coming from these morons is deafening, and I'm beyond angry. And all of you should be angry as well. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more, all for free.
Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.